All right. I'm sure people will continue to log in, but I do want to be respectful of people's time. So it's uh, 3.01 p.m. Central Time. Uh, let's get started. Uh, my name is Tim Murgo. I work at the University of Chicago. I am the current chair of Education Committee for CHEST, and um, I'm here to represent our CHEST COVID-19 uh, task force. Um, I welcome you to our, to our webinar today with the focus on uh, lung cancer diagnosis and management during the pandemic. Next slide, please. I have no disclosures pertinent to my role today as the moderator of this session. Next slide, please. So I wanna, before we, I introduce the panel, I do wanna give you a brief background info on um, COVID-19 task force and its role during the pandemic. So in the beginning of, uh, of the year, our chess president, Stephanie Levine, um, asked Steve, Steve Simpson, who's our president-elect, to create and lead this task force. So over the last six months, this group has done tremendous work, really, in creating and curating COVID-related materials for, um, for our community. We started this Thursday live webinars back in March. Today, this is our 23rd event, and um, we will um, we'll continue as long as we think these webinars continue to be relevant. Next slide, please. So our goals today are really to provide an overview of the consensus statements um, or guidelines, if they do exist, on diagnosing and management of lung cancer patients during the pandemic. And also importantly, to have our expert panel share their personal and institutional experience with managing patients with lung cancer during these challenging times. So it's my, um, next slide please. It's my pleasure to, to introduce the panel. We have four experts in the field of thoracic oncology. I will start with uh, Dr. Jessica Dunnington, who's um, Professor Jessica, you wanna wave to the audience so we know who you are. And Dr. Dunnington is the Professor of Surgery and Chief of Thoracic Surgery at the University of Chicago. She's an author of Lung Cancer Guidelines um, and a, a recent statement on alternative management options of advanced lung cancer during COVID-19. On a personal note, Dr. Dunnington is a wonderful colleague and we're really privileged to have her as a leader of our thoracic oncology program here at the University of Chicago. We have Dr. Jody Patel, um, who is a professor of medicine and the director of thoracic oncology at Northwestern University, also in Chicago. Dr. Patel has uh, published extensively on targeted and immunotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer, including papers in New England Journal of Medicine and, um, and Lancet. We have Dr. Andreas Rimner, who is a radiation oncologist and an associate attending at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer in New York where he's also the director of thoracic um, radiation oncology research. Dr. Rimner also has authored several papers on the role of thoracic radiation therapy during COVID-19, including a consensus statement from uh, American Society for Radiation Oncology. And we have Dr. Gerard Silvestri, who is a past president of our society chest, and he's an endowed professor of thoracic oncology at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Silvestri is a prolific researcher in outcome and translational research, 
author of lung cancer guidelines, numerous articles on screening, diagnosis, and management of thoracic oncology, of thoracic malignancies. He has uh, numerous papers, including articles in New England Journal and um, our society's journal, Chest. Pertinent to COVID, Dr. Silvestri has recently co-authored consensus statements on screening and lung nodule management during the pandemic, published in, uh, in the journal, Chest. So welcome to, the, welcome to our program. Thank you for taking time from your busy days to join us today. Next slide, please. So I trust we'll have meaningful discussions today and that we'll have the chance to address all of your questions. So without further ado, um, I wanna get started and pass the microphone to Dr. Silvestri. Dr. Silvestri. Hello. Uh, hey, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Margu. I'm sorry. I, I actually, believe it or not, during your introduction, uh, my uh, internet went south on me. So I'm back and uh, this is a, a brave new world with all of us doing uh, Zoom webinars and, and other things. I, I want to talk to you a moment about the management of nodules and screening in the COVID era. Um, so, so if I can go to the next slide, please. Um, I have no disclosures related to this topic. I, I would point uh, to two guidelines or consensus statements that were actually done very quickly after uh, the uh, outbreak of the COVID epidemic. The one I'm going to really concentrate on is the uh, CHEST American Thoracic Society, American College of Radiology uh, uh, um, uh, guide consensus statement. Um, and uh, Peter Mazzone uh, helped me uh, with some slides for this. Uh, he, he was the lead author for this. If you could go to the next slide, please. So this is it. And, and I, I don't normally put the titles up with the, the paper, but, but from what you can see here is uh, there are 23 uh, physicians. We had thoracic surgery. We had six thoracic radiologists. We had an international panel, members from the Fleshner Society, members from the US, Canada, and Europe. Um, and pulmonologists, uh, as well as uh, uh, as well as uh, other healthcare professionals, uh, and we got together. Believe it or not, within two phone calls, we had scenarios put together, and we each voted using uh, using criteria uh, for that, and uh, we were in agreement on most of the recommendations. If you could go to the next slide, please. We did use a Delphi approach. The background here is the risk from potential exposure to COVID-19 and resource al allocation that occurred to combat the pandemic altered the balance of benefits and harms that informed pre-COVID guideline recommendations for screening and nodule management. One thing I'd like uh, for this group to remember is that screening, uh, you're looking for disease in a well population. So these are not patients who are coming in sick asking you for your help. And the question is, could you put off screening and if so, how long? Uh, there were 24 members to the panel, uh, 17 pulmonologists, five thoracic uh, radiologists, two thoracic surgeons. Um, the panel was provided with an overview of the current evidence and was convened by video teleconference to look at 12 common clinical scenarios, 12 statements related to the baseline and annual cancer screening, two for surveillance, uh, five for evaluation of intermediate and high-risk nodules, and four for the management of stage one lung cancer were developed and modified. If you could go to the next slide. And I'm not, I'm not gonna go over each of these scenarios, but, but in essence, what, what you'll see in the column one is, is whether we strongly agreed, column two, we just agreed, column three, neutral, any disagreement um, and strong disagreement. And what I can tell you is we never had anything below a 75% um, agree or strongly agree. 
And so in those scenarios, the first one was, could you delay initiation of screening? And every single one of us agreed that if you were a new patient wanting to be screened, we should delay that screening until the, um, until the uh, percent new cases in your area was low enough uh, that you could safely feel comfortable for them coming in for a screen. We also felt that it was reasonable to delay uh, annual screening up to six months, three to six months, based again on the uh, epidemiology of the virus in your area. Um, then we went on to say, okay, well, let's talk about different things that you might see in a screening program. And normally, um, we, would, uh, we, would, we would not delay the evaluation of someone with a nodule, but in this instance, we looked at nodules that were small, less than eight millimeters. And in fact, we said, you know what? It would be reasonable if you had a three-month follow-up to extend that, for example, to six to nine months, if, if, you, if you would. Um, delayed surveillance for lung RADS3. Now, lung RADS3 normally gets a six-month follow-up CT. Lung RADS1 and 2, you just come back for your yearly exam, lung RADS3. Uh, there was something that we saw on the uh, CT scan that might have bothered us a little bit. And in those instances, uh, we normally brought folks back at six months for follow-up. And again, here, the agreement was that you could delay that to nine to 12 months if you needed to. Um, and then uh, we looked again at a delay of surveillance for a ground glass nodule. Remember, ground glass nodules have usually an incredibly uh, slow biology. And in those patients with ground glass nodules, we again were in agreement or strong agreement uh, in most of those that you could stretch out your follow-up. Uh, delayed surveillance for a six to eight millimeter part solid nodule. Now again, part solid nodules, um, they're more likely to be adenocarcinomas. The solid component is what we worry about. Um, so even if the nodule doesn't change size, if the solid component enlar enlarges, we normally work those up a bit more aggressively. Again, the feeling was that these could be delayed. And I'll talk about the timing of the delay in the, I think in the next slide, but, um, and then uh, delayed surveillance for something uh, with about uh, a greater than eight millimeters. So a little bit larger nodule, but the probability of cancer as calculated by the Swenson model, um, we felt if it was a low probability, even if it was a larger nodule um, uh, that you could delay uh, follow-up. Now this one had a bit of a spread, right? Like we had strongly agree in eight, we had agree in uh, 13 very neutral in two, and, and one person disagreed with that statement. Um, how about monitoring an eight millimeter nodule in the 10 to 25% range? Normally that would be a three to six month, um, uh, or you could go, so normally an eight millimeter nodule in the 10 to 25% range would warrant either a PET scan or a biopsy, either by TTNA or bronchoscopy. In this instance, we said, hey, look, you might want to delay this uh, three to six months. And again, here, there was a bigger spread, a bit more disagreement on that. Um, and then uh, again, I, I can go down, but monitoring a part solid nodule um, in three to six months, rather than going straight to PET or biopsy, um, we felt was uh, reasonable. Again, you can see the spread. One person strongly disagreed with, I mean, uh, two people disagreed with that. The next one was a solid nodule that was a, in a high-risk patient. Um, how would you evaluate a solid nodule in the high-risk patient? And again, in that one, there was a large spread for how to evaluate that solid nodule. Some people um, said, look, maybe we would do a biopsy or a PET scan um, and delay surgery depending on the resources. But that was the one that caused the most controversy within our group um, with a fairly wide spread. And 
I will say that in the discussions among these doctors from basically all over the world, um, a lot of it depended on the epidemiology of COVID in their area. Some of it depended on whether they were um, uh, whether they were vaccine patients or really trying uh, to, to limit elective surgeries, um, uh, and and whether they were uh, their resources were reallocated to ICUs, for example, uh, that were full with other patients. And then the eleventh the one was to avoid further diagnostic testing of solid nodules uh, greater than eight millimeters. Um, whether they could, and an 85% pretest probability of cancer. And here, um, most of us said, hey, you know, that kind of person, you should avoid further diagnostic testing and go straight to surgery. Again, there was a, a little bit of a wider spread. Um, and, then, uh, and then the question, the last question was whether you'd consider delay in a known stage one lung cancer. And here, what we said was, look, you know, if you had a, a stage 1A, for example, two centimeter tumor, waiting three months to resect that until things got a, a bit clearer um, uh, and, and uh, your, your numbers were down in your, in your area might be worthwhile. And again, there was actually not a lot of controversy over that. So if, if we could go to the next slide. So the authors of the consensus statement recognize that it, it shouldn't be interpreted as a one size fits all. And what is appropriate now could change over time. So just for example, we uh, completely shut down our screening program to new screening patients. However, uh, over the last two months, what with three, maybe two months, what we decided to do was have uh, televisits, have the patients go for their new screen to the CT scanner and go directly back home and then do a telemedicine visit for those patients. Um, and so, so we have changed over time as things have cleared up in our area. Um, application of a general assessment to an individual patient requires the clinical judgment of the management team. And so for a number of these patients, particularly with part solid nodules, uh, lung rads three, we have bought them to our tumor board and said, hey, is it reasonable to delay these patients? In addition to considering patient factors and values, we attempted to highlight that local factors, such as the prevalence of COVID, the availability of rapid testing, the adequacy of the resources, personnel, imaging, PPE, local policies and the presence of other care delivery sites uh, that are less impacted by COVID should be considered when making individual decisions. Now, I know people don't like to lose patients to other health systems, um, but if you had a patient that seriously was nervous, wanted their surgery done, um, you know, refer them to a place that has a, a lower, uh, a, a lower uh, prevalence of COVID certainly makes sense. So I think, you know, we, in general, for screening, delayed, delayed, delayed. For very low-risk nodules, we were willing to delay. For higher-risk nodules, we were willing to delay a little, but there was more sort of uh, nervousness about that. Um, and, uh, and for high-risk nodules, we still thought they should go uh, be evaluated. Now, finally, uh, for a very small known cancer, um, we, uh, we talked to our patients, and, and, and we did uh, do, obviously do surgery on those patients. Um, and I'm going to leave you with this. I, I don't think the penalty for what we did uh, may be known for a long time. Uh, we certainly saw in my cancer clinic a huge decrease in the number of cancer cases that came in. And I think there was a lot of pent up demand. Do we know whether there's been a stage shift? Um, I, I, I can't tell you that yet. My guess is for the small nodules, absolutely not. Uh, for some of the larger nodules and, and stage 1Bs, 
Maybe there was, and we'll only find that out, I think, with time. So I think that's my last slide, Dr. Magoo, and um, I don't know if you want to stop and have folks answer questions, ask some questions. Absolutely. So uh, thank you, Gerard. Um, we have a few questions from um, the participants. Um, one of them is in regards to, is there a role for uh, sputum for diagnosis and monitoring for lung carcinoma. I suspect that's uh, pertinent to th these times of pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, sputum is uh, is uh, gets aerosolized, so I, I think I'd probably avoid sputum. Um, you know, I think other people might talk a bit more about bronchoscopy. And there, I did at the beginning, at the first slide, show you that there's a full um, a consensus statement on bronchoscopy. Um, no, I, I think there's probably not a role. What we've been doing uh, in our bronchoscopy lab is COVID testing everyone within 72 to 96 hours uh, prior to their procedure. Everyone has on PPE and we pr uh, proceeded with that. I can tell you in a university program where we had up uh, just two weeks ago, 120 COVID patients in-house, uh, 35 in the ICU, 20 on ventilators. Um, and we have a faculty of close to 30 pulmonologists and 15 fellows. Not a single uh, one of us, uh, knock on wood, has been affected by COVID, nor has the Bronx staff. So I think with the proper PPE, with guidance, with, uh, with uh, fairly rapid testing, you can proceed to the diagnostic testing you need to adequately care for the patient. So I would not dispute him in that regard. So you pretty much answered the second question, which was how uh, safe is bronchoscopy in COVID-positive patients? I, I think you answered that with the appropriate PPE. It appears to be safe based on what we're learning. Um, now, there is one question in regards to bronchoscopy and the utility of um, rapid on-site evaluation during the pandemic. I suspect the concern there is um, you have more people in the room, and maybe social distancing is not respected. So um, is ROSE utilized uh, yeah. during the pandemic? And, yeah. um, so that's, yeah. a, that's a, great, it's a great question. Um, uh, we, we actually do have ROSE and we did have it in a, a fairly large, our one like more of a procedure suite. Um, and we had them over in the corner of the procedure suite. And what we did was uh, we moved them out into another room um, in the um, bronchoscopy area where they could, they could still wear, uh, you know, PPE. And uh, it's worked out really well. In fact, in fact, I think they like it better. You know, they sit in their other room. We just walk the needle over and make the slides right there and go back to work. So it hasn't been an issue. I, I certainly think that um, you need to be flexible and there's not a one-size-fits-all um, uh, I know that one other institution I've spoken to, uh, they've done remote, so they have a microscope with a, uh, a uh, like a teaching head, if you will, that goes to the internet and they look at the slides. And so the Bronx staff is preparing the slides and then it's being, you know, uh, uploaded to uh, the cytologist in, in another area. I think that's another possible solution. Okay, I, I actually have a question, um, unless the panelists have questions for Dr. Silvestri. I have a question as I was reflecting on, um, on your slides. So let's say you have a patient and you suspect stage one lung cancer and a decision is taken to proceed with a bronchoscopy and the patient tests positive for COVID. Um, now we know that postponing the bronch will protect healthcare workers and 
patients in, in the hospital that may be exposed to this particular individual. So how long can such patients wait before they risk upstaging? Yeah, so no one really knows the answer to that. And, and there's been one paper that suggests that delays in surgery, and Jess is probably, Jess Donington, Dr. Donington, excuse me, um, is probably familiar with this paper. Uh, that's been fairly widely quoted, but the problem, Dr. Magoo, is, is one of a biology. We simply don't know what the biology uh, of these tumors are. In rapidly progressing tumors, I think you, you might have a problem. Um, we, we, we will delay slightly for a COVID positive patient. Um, we will delay uh, 10 to 14 days from the onset of symptoms, probably 14 days. We try to retest them. Although you, as you know, PCR can remain positive even after the patient's relatively uh, is asymptomatic for a number of days. And then uh, we proceed. I don't, look, I think in a known cancer, I wouldn't want to delay uh, a, a very long time, um, I just don't believe that we truly have the answer to that question. And I do think it's different for each patient. I can imagine what used to be called a bronchoalveolar cell carcinoma, uh, adenocarcinoma in situ. Um, I can imagine those not progressing at all in three months. Um, and then I can imagine other poorly differentiated cancers uh, progressing somewhat in three months. I just can't answer that for each individual patient. We don't try to delay very long. If it's cancer, we'd like to get it out. Um, but I don't think... 10 days or 14 days waiting to rebrand them is the problem. So I, I would not do it like immediately, you know? Okay. And uh, there are a few more questions. We probably uh, can only take one more before we move on here. Um, what about genomic BAL or blood testing to risk stratify uh, solitary pulmonary nodules? I suspect yeah, so that's also pertinent to the pandemic. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, uh, there, there, there's the, um, Biodesics has the blood test for a rule out. That's in intermediate risk nodules. We published that paper, a multi-center trial in chest. Um, and so if you have an intermediate risk nodule, um, doing, a, uh, doing a blood biomarker as a rule out test is reasonable. If it comes back indeterminate, you're in exactly the same pace. But if it, if it lowers your risk to surveillance, um, that would be good. And in the one paper we published, 40% of the patients who ended up with benign disease, had they followed the test, which we didn't know the results of the test, it was blinded, um, would, have, uh, would have saved invasive testing. So I do think there might be a role there. Um, the other test uh, is uh, Varicite, which is the genomic brushing test of the carina in patients who are undergoing bronchoscopy with an intermediate risk of lung cancer, a rule out there if you're doing the bronchoscopy and it, becomes, and it comes back non-diagnostic. Um, it's reasonable, again, to surveil those patients. Um, so so I, I do think that you can uh, do this intermediate test, uh, testing before, uh, before proceeding directly to surgery. And you'd, you'd certainly like to do that if you could eliminate benign disease patients from undergoing invasive testing, whether you're in the COVID era or not. Thank you, Dr. Silvestri. It's 324. Let's learn how thoracic surgeons have adapted to their practice during the pandemic. Dr. Dunnington. All right, thank you. Next slide, please. So we know that lung cancer patients were particularly at risk during the COVID pandemic. Um, while cancer patients in general and the populations in Wuhan and Milan were overrepresented, by far the greatest number of cancer patients were lung cancer patients. Next slide. This was also uh, true in New York. And the other thing that we noted was that not only were lung cancer patients overrepresented, 
they had by far the highest mortality. And again, with age and comorbidity, this is not unexpected. Next slide. So do we operate or not operate? And what's the advantage or not advantage? Well, the advantage of operating is obviously for early stage disease, we improve survival, reduce the risk of progression and complications. But in bringing people in, were there complications related to the pandemic? Next slide. And this is a couple like graphs of what we think the pandemic looked like and what it really meant in terms of surgery and treatment for lung cancer. That red curve, although the I put in the new New York there, uh, was really what happened in New York. It was so big, no one did lung cancer surgery. That's because most of the IC, most of the ORs were now working as ICUs. So it was easy. Emergency surgery meant you were going to die today or you're going to go to surgery. And that's not really true for most lung cancer patients. Luckily here in Chicago, we looked a little bit more like the yellow. Like we had a lot of resources stripped, but we never needed at any of our hospitals to turn our ORs into ICUs. So therefore, there was a little bit more about what do we do and how do we treat it and how do we know who gets the surgery and who doesn't. And really, managing surgery during this is all about where you are in the pandemic. Next slide, please. So here in Chicago, we're kind of living in this green phase now. I think my update from my hospital said we have 12 COVID patients in hospital right now. We are definitely on this tail end, but the disease is still out there. So we're still trying to figure out how we manage lung cancer in an ongoing pandemic now that hopefully some of the acute resource issues are gone. Next slide. Um, so operating on COVID positive patients is not a good thing. We learned, all learned this very early in the pandemic. We had our own tragedies here in the United States and we knew it from Wuhan and Milan that if you operate on people who asymptomatically have COVID, they are not going to do well, um, with over half of them remaining in the ICU and death rates about 20 to 25%. Next slide. So this has been something that scared a lot of us in the beginning. So in Chicago, where we still had ORs, we kind of all stopped operating because we were scared. We didn't want people to die unnecessarily uh, from their surgeries. And again, lung cancer especially was something that nobody wanted to take on until we had a better handle on what the morbidity and mortality was related to procedures and to the point where we knew we could test our patients prior to bringing them in. Because a lot of the morbidity and mortality they see in these trials was in asymptomatic patients undergoing resection. Next slide. So when we talk about how we assess risk, we also did have to think about what that meant in terms of the hospital and the staff. And in the beginning of the pandemic, that was a big deal. It's a little bit more under control. Again, we've figured out that PPE works. Um, but in the beginning, that was a big part of how we thought about when we would do surgery. Next slide. Uh, so I think it was a real shift in our judgment and how we did things. Basically, you know, we are used to, as doctors, making a decision based upon our best clinical judgment with a patient. It's just the two of us, we do that, maybe you include a family, but there's not a lot else. And suddenly we were forced to think of this as a public health concern and talk about resource lim limitations and risk to the healthcare team. And this was really a very different and very uncomfortable conversation to tell like an early stage lung cancer patient, well, I know you have lung cancer, but it's not so, so bad, let's wait. This was not something we were used to and it was really 
very challenging. Next slide. This is just a look at the fact that when we weren't operating, my department was writing and we all were writing. <laughs> I review for several journals, so many articles go in. This is some of the stuff we wrote. Next slide. But this coming slide, this is the most important thing that came out of our department. This is our MENS scoring system. And this is recognizing that, you know, the term elective is a very limited word in surgery and that there's a lot between, you know, an aortic dissection and a facelift. And how we figure out what's important in there was a whole thing that, again, we weren't used to thinking about it. And this scoring system was able to make sense of that by looking at not only the procedure, but the patient and the disease and scoring each of them. And now this has been accepted by the American College of Surgeons, the American Association of Anesthesiologists, and many institutions throughout the world, actually. So next slide. Uh, so again, patient procedure disease. So patient factors really focused on what makes the patient sick or puts them at risk for COVID? Again, are they older? Do they have underlying comorbidities? Things that would make a COVID infection deadly. We don't want to operate on those people. Next slide. The procedure factors really talk about resource utilization. So this is really how much time in the OR. Are you going to need a hospital bed? Are you going to need an ICU bed? Are you going to be a ventilated patient after your procedure? And that's why you know, some big heart operations don't make sense. Unfortunately, our mesothelioma practice really had a hard time because all those patients were going to need an ICU bed and had, we knew they were going to be in the hospital with us for a week or 10 days. And we were like, we can't do that. We don't have that resource available to us now. Next slide. And then finally, the disease factors was really about what does the weight mean for this disease? So does waiting two weeks make sense? Does waiting six weeks make sense? And that's very dependent upon whether you're dealing with coronary artery disease or you're dealing with a ground glass opacity. Uh, and so all of this goes into the score. Next slide. So every patient who came into our hospital got this score. Whether you're getting an orthopedic procedure or you were getting a thoracic procedure, everyone got scored on it. And what we found, it was it gave us a very realistic view of what was necessary and needed to go now and what could wait and everyone got scored basically between 25 and 105 and then we we did them when we determined by where we were in the pandemic what was a safe line to operate around so in the beginning the line was quite low you know if you had appendicitis you went to the OR because you didn't take an ICU bed you'd be gone in a day and we made you better but if you needed, you know, your mesothelioma taken care of, it wasn't going to happen. And unfortunately, the lung cancer patients came quite high on the scale. And many of them got delayed for that reason, that they were older, they did have comorbidities, and they would require a lot of resources, which were scarce. As our resources got better, the line shifted up and more and more surgeries were done. Next slide. So again, I think I talked about this, that this was really a, a, a hard shift from patient-centered decision to a public health kind of decisions. And it was really hard and stressful, not only for our patients, but for our caregivers. Next slide. I think this might've been some of the work you were talking about, Gerard, which really was asking how long can we delay surgery in cancer patients? This is work from Karen Taraga from the National Can uh, Cancer Database. 
And the, so on the slide on the left, we're looking at time between diagnosis and treatment um, for early stage cancers. And then on the second one from people who need induction therapy and lung cancer, I put the little arrow there. So the current waiting time in the United States between a diagnosis and surgery is about four weeks. When do we start to see a tip where it starts to have a negative impact on survival? It's about five weeks. It's, I know. And I mean, that's all comers and granted sicker people require more workup, but it's the kind of thing to think about that if you're delaying your cancer intervention for more than five weeks, that's why we start to get nervous and there are similar lines following induction therapy. Next slide. So what were we doing during COVID? So at the peak of the pandemic here in Chicago, a little bit like New York, we had a period where we stopped. As we restarted, what kind of stuff did we continue to do? Granted, the first people on the list to get back in the thing were people who had solid tumors greater than two centimeters. Those had to be done. We had to move forward along with node positive patients. People who had finished their induction therapy, if we couldn't give them another round of chemo or they had finished the radiation, they were on the front of the list. We had to do them. And so they were first. And we really wanted to keep the staging procedures going. The last thing you want to do is take someone with stage three or four disease and tell them they had to wait to start their therapy. As Gerard mentioned, we held off on things like round glass opacities, really small one centimeter nodules found in screening. We said, you know, let's put you in the second wave of cases. Um, and then, like I mentioned with mesothelioma patients, people who we knew had ICU stays had to wait until we had the resources available. What did we do to try and make people wait? Um, we did give neoadjuvant therapy for people who may have otherwise really been adjuvant candidates. That was a great way to make people wait. Some frail patients, we said, nope, even though you're you know, high risk, but we can operate on you, let's do SBRT. Um, and we often were very lucky that we could extend neoadjuvant treatment. So we usually give four cycles. We had a five or six people who got six cycles of induction chemotherapy. It's not what we normally did, but it bought us the time to get the resources we need. Next slide. Um, and people who we did operate on and what we do now, what do we do? Well, obviously we've spread out our clinics. We do a lot more video visiting. That only means the people who come in are the ones we need to see them. Obviously we still don't want to operate on anyone who has COVID. So those, everyone gets tested 48 to 72 hours. We still do a men's score, although we don't defer very many patients now. We're really back to normal here with these precautions in place. We still limit our visitors. The hospital's pretty empty and we use universal masking. As for the power of PPE, I will tell you, we had a member of our scrub team COVID positive, meaning we all got to spend you know, 12 hours a day with her for two days in a row, but in full masking, nobody zero converted, nobody. So there is power in PPE, there is power in masking and I am a firm, firm believer. Uh, next slide. So I think lung cancer has been tough. I, I worry that this delay in diagnosis is gonna hurt our patients. Um, they are highly vulnerable, they are highly at risk, but they don't tolerate treatment delay, uh, delays. So we have worked hard to get them back in the loop to not put off treatment once nodules are found. And we worked hard to get them prioritized in a system which would otherwise leave them a little behind for the resource utilization. Uh, and we are, like I said, very vigilant in our protective practices. And I think that's one of the important things. Teach not only your providers, but your patients that they need to be vigilant in protecting themselves. I think that's it. Next slide.
Thank you, Dr. Dunnington. Questions from the panelists for Dr. Dunnington? This is Gerard Just. Thank you. That was awesome. Um, I, I, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of how we can sort this out, and I'm wondering if you think it, there's been a natural experiment, right? Like we all shut down, and I think we could, if we're thoughtful, in the next year or two, because it takes about a year to curate that data from SEER and others, um, really see what the stage distribution across the country was. And we could certainly break that down by size of primary tumor. Um, and I do think we're maybe going to figure out what the delay was uh, between the, the, the initiation of uh, first diagnosis and stage. I, I wonder what about your thoughts on that. I totally agree. Because I think, I think because our population knows they're vulnerable, they have been we have wanted them back and they have been slow to come back. Our patients are very slow to come back and they are very worried about being in the hospital and around people. And I think, you know, you're right. It's probably one or two years away before we can look back and see what happened in 2020. But I think there's going to be a stage shift. I think, you know, even if it's five percentage points out of stage one into stage three, that's a real change. And I think we're going to see that. Um, or, you know, maybe it's that upswing in early diagnosis we're making with staging now is going to dip and then come back because I think, I think it happened. And I think I still find a lot of patients who don't want to come in, even when they know they have cancer. You're like, really? Wow. It's amazing. I got a lady I just diagnosed with small cell. She's like, I'm a little worried about the chemo because, you know, the COVID. I'm like, honey, come on. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Dunnington, thank you. You know, I, um, we would like to move on relatively soon, but I do have a question that comes up often in regards to staging. I know that earlier in the pandemic, the um, availability of invasive procedures was limited and people were reluctant to, to do any, any kind of intervention, bronchoscopy or CT-guided biopsies for that reason. Um, so there are statements out there that um, given the limitation in doing bronchoscopies for staging, you know, PET-CT may suffice uh, prior to definitive treatment. Now we're six months into, into the pandemic. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? I think it definitely depends upon where you live on that curve. I mean, if you're in that red curve and, you know, whether that's places in Arizona now, or I don't know who's at the peak of that curve like New York was, we didn't have that luxury of staging. Um, but for most places in the United States right now, we have the luxury of staging. I mean, the other difference when we published that in you know March or April, our fear for lateral transmission was so high, you know, and now we've gotten, I think that fear has gone away in our healthcare workers and our healthcare teams. Um, but I think, so I think in most places, we now have the resources to appropriately go back to the kind of staging we used before. And I think those cities who know they don't have the resources, they know they don't have the resources. Um, but that's not where we are in New York, Chicago, South Carolina right now. It's just not. All right. Thank you, Dr. Dunnington. Let's move on and uh, learn about how medical oncology practice has been impacted by, by COVID-19 and how we adapt to it. Uh, Dr. Patel? Right, thanks so much. Um, 
So, you know, two sort of excellent, excellent um, talks. And then I have, I think, a, a little bit different take in a world which is primarily office-based and outpatient and has unique considerations for our patients. So next slide, please. So if we think about the spike of COVID, certainly we are all faced with the worry that there will be excess cancer-related mortality. In fact, we know in Illinois since April, there's been a 50% decrease in lung cancer insurance claim data um, over these six months. And so clearly we can't imagine that our absolute numbers have gone down by 50%. It's that patients are likely not coming forward. We also worry about the long-term sequela of treatment that's been de-intensified, delayed, or outright canceled. Um, and so as we think about this wave and, and the next waves of mitigation, it is important to um, not just look at current uh, data, but also to keep an eye on what one and two year survival looks like as Gerard and, um, and Jessica had noted. Next slide. So certainly um, the lung cancer factors that have been associated with worse outcome and more severe um, COVID-19 have certainly been enumerated. We think that patients, again, with older age, comorbidities, worse performance status, do more poorly, and that goes across diseases. But we also know that patients with recent chemotherapy treatments within the past two weeks, or who have a relatively recent diagnosis, um, tend to have a much more severe course. Again, this, I think, is changing as the pandemic changes in terms of demographics, as we see more asymptomatic carriage as well, um, that, that some of this data may evolve. Um, again, six and a half months into our current crisis. Next slide, please. The factors that we really think about in medical oncology, though, come not only from um, episodic care, but truly longitudinal care. So many of our patients we are used to seeing in clinic every two to three weeks who are getting um, infusional therapy, getting CTs, um, get, you know, undergoing evaluation over a long period of time. And when we initially um, sort of came to a full stop in, uh, in much of Chicago, the oncology clinics were still seeing patients. So we still had, even in those very early weeks, about 20% of people coming through um, in, in normal traffic. But that brought with it a big change in procedures in clinics. So the social distancing, the PPE that we were wearing, and again, as Dr. Donington mentioned, a huge learning curve, that real fear that many of our staff had about vertical, about um, horizontal transmission and the value of PPE, the screening that we did, providing comfort to our entire teams about uh, about seeing people in person. The screening techniques that we did, if many of you have had attestations as you come into work, uh, confirming that you haven't had one of, of many symptoms or haven't been in contact with someone with COVID that was um, done manually, but now many of us have apps. We think about visitors who will come. Again, in early March, patients were on their own um, certainly med medical centers now are allowing visitors to come into hospitals, but again, it's very, um, it's very well controlled and intentional. Patients um, have their temperatures checked. 
So the traffic seems a lot different. How we do our medical procedures. So if a patient, for example, is getting a port accessed, what does that space look like? Then do we actually move them to another room where the physician may see them and then move them to another room for infusional therapy? So were the sort of the flow of the clinic was changed significantly. And then many of our patients, we could switch to telemedicine. So even those that were getting infusional therapy, sometimes we would do the pre-visit um, by telemedicine. So patients would um, call me, you know, I'd call them while they were in their parking garage, go through symptoms, decide whether or not I needed to see them in real time, have them get their blood work, and then go straight to infusion. We could switch that to an in-person visit very quickly. But there were a lot of moving parts. Um, certainly, I think in oncology clinics, we, because we had kept going, we had a, a little bit more time and space and, and could uh, take over many other clinic out patient clinic spaces that were empty to, to really deliver this care to our patients. Since March, um, the development of COVID-19 testing has been so accelerated in many medical centers. And so many of you now have drive-through testing. We now um, implement uh, testing for all patients starting chemotherapy clearly before any um, changes in treatment. I'm now doing it before a patient begins a clinical trial, and then certainly um, before any diagnostic procedures. We are learning much more about systemic treatments and, uh, and viral infection in terms of risk factors and complications, and I'll talk about that a little bit in a, in a minute. Clinical practice guidelines for medical oncology have um, many uh, groups have delivered consensus statements, but they hit at pretty similar uh, sort of high and low points, things that are high risk and low risk, and there is widespread consensus. And then finally, a lot has changed in the past seven months in lung cancer and medical oncology. We've had seven lung cancer approvals, um, changes in dosing um, that have been, I think, very impactful to care delivery. Next slide, please. So, sort of broke this up into thinking about how we approach different stages of disease. And this comes from ESMO um, and their consensus statement, but I think it's probably the most succinct. And, and, and so I pull for that, even though I was involved with the ASCO um, COVID guidelines. So this is, this is the plug. Um, but certainly, as Dr. Donington mentioned, we would say that for patients with limited stage small cell, clearly um, this is an aggressive disease and even in, in um, high prevalence um, areas and in areas in which uh, resources are constrained, these are patients that we would want to treat early. So chemoradiation for these patients. Talked a little bit about patients with stage two disease. So um, one option in resource constrained um, hospitals would be to give neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy for, for stage two. Again, if we're moving away from this and, and patients who are stage two are, are now going to the OR, I think an important consideration also is the um, advent of minimally invasive surgeries. And so what we thought might have been long hospitalizations before now are often um, overnight stays or two-night stays after a robotic surgery or minimally invasive surgery. And then finally, we're recommending very strongly that patients who are at risk for febrile neutropenia, and we consider that high risk at 15%, get growth factor. And so we're strongly recommending GCSF. It used to be that it would only be in patients who are high risk, so 
um, elderly or comorbidities, but now sort of uniformly we want to avoid neutropenia. Um, medium priority is adjuvant chemotherapy. So the window for adjuvant chemotherapy generally is anywhere between four and 12 weeks after surgery. And so there is some space uh, to, um, to move that around. Remember that adjuvant chemotherapy for someone who has had resected disease varies between an absolute survival benefit of between eight and 15%. So this is substantial. And certainly in someone who is fit, you do not want to de deny this potentially life-saving therapy. Things that would be low priority during pandemic would be the use of adjuvant therapy in a node negative patient. So that survival benefit may be between three and 5%, so much less bang for the buck, but equal toxicity. And so this is a patient population in which you may reassess um, treatment plans, as well as adjuvant therapy in patients who have multiple comorbidities or who would be at higher risk from toxicity. So those with poor PS or, or, or multiple other medical issues. The next slide, please. In locally advanced disease, so patients with um, limited stage small cell, again, a, a potentially curable disease, 30% um, of patients are cured. Certainly we want to continue treating those patients. Um, high priority again would be for stage three disease. Um, and that would be either chemoradiation um, or neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And again, the same idea about growth factor response. For patients who have completed chemoradiation, we felt that it was, uh, many have felt it's very important to continue consolidation durvalumab. So if you remember, after chemoradiation, um, consolidation, durvalumab has a hazard ratio of about 0.5. So it improves overall outcome um, at three years um, significantly. Um, and so uh, certainly if a patient was receiving this, um, we would want to continue, and some things have changed. The dosing was every two weeks, and now is it can be given every four weeks, and so there is some space, but that would remain a high priority. An area that we've really changed um, is seeing patients between cycles. So often chemotherapy regimens are based every three weeks, um, and sometimes patients would be seen at week two for toxicity checks, for fluids, for CBCs. Now, um, that is really going by the wayside. We generally are doing telephone um, visits with, with patients or video visits with patients and only bringing them in if they are coming for something. So if they're actually getting IV fluids, we're not routinely um, checking blood work for patients. And that, again, has also, um, I think, has had us um, select our patients a little bit more effectively, but also has enabled um, our patients to advocate for themselves and to really reach out and to have this conversation about whether or not they're experiencing toxicity rather than a one-size-fits-all, come on day 10, let's see how you're doing. Next slide. The vast majority of our patients, as you know, have advanced stage disease. And so for these patients, you know, we, we can't wait six months for this to go away. We can barely often wait six weeks. And so these are patients that continued to come in for treatment early um, through the disease and anyone on first-line therapy. Patients who were receiving second-line therapy, if they had clear progressive disease or symptoms, remember that without treatment, um, overall survival for these patients can be quite short on the order of two to three months. So really delaying uh, is, is deleterious. We felt that GCSFU should be given to patients, certainly 
um, again, at any risk of neutropenia. And then most importantly, the FDA, I think, was, um, was very forward thinking in um, approving some modified dosing. So for one example, pembrolizumab was given, is, has been given every three, month, three weeks um, indefinitely or two years for most patients. But based on PK modeling, so not a clinical trial, but just on PK modeling, the FDA was able to approve um, at the end of April, um, Q6 week dosing. And so for a patient who's been quite stable with good disease control, Q6 certainly uh, changes um, how, how we deliver care, spaces in waiting rooms, spaces in fusion. You know, it's not just the patient coming in, it's sort of all of um, the care team that goes from the MAs that are rooming them to the phlebotomist, to the infusional nurse, to the clinic staff. Uh, medium priority in patients who had um, minimal progression or were asymptomatic initiation uh, of second line therapy was felt to sort of be medium priority. And again, based a little bit upon um, local demographics, blood and visits between cycles of therapy. Again, we let go. And then this idea of low priority. So discontinuation of immune checkpoint inhibitors after two years. So it's unclear, I think, um, really how long we should continue immune checkpoint inhibitors. The trials that have been done have looked at two years. There is increasing data that discontinuation and then regrowth at some point with retreatment leads to tumor response in a substantial number of patients. And so certainly there are many conversations about when can we discontinue treatment. And particularly for patients who may have had toxicity like pneumonitis, resumption of therapy was something that was felt to be a little bit dangerous. Next slide. Some of the unique challenges in lung cancer really has to do with the therapies that we deliver. So as you know, that if we look across all cancers, immune checkpoint inhibitor-related pneumonitis that's severe occurs in about 2% of cancer patients. We know it's slightly higher in lung cancer patients for a variety of reasons, including prior radiation, um, interstitial lung disease, COPD, um, but certainly we see it more often in our patients. We also know that uh, a number of tyrosine kinase inhibitors can cause interstitial-like pneumonitis and particularly um, the one that stands out is osimertinib, that's frontline therapy for patients with EGFR mutations, and can be asymptomatic in up to 10% of patients, 4% of patients um, can have minor symptoms. We also know that many of the chemotherapies that we give um, are not only immunosuppressive, that can cause pneumonitis, and that can occur in a large number of patients, up to 16, depending on, um, on other factors such as previous radiation therapy, for example. Next slide. So we think about these pulmonary toxicities. The problem is they all kind of look like COVID. So um, ataxia pneumonitis, though rare, um, can happen with a patient who has previous ILD or radiation therapy. TKI pneumonitis is more prevalent in patients who have, a, again, a history of ILD or smokers. Um, ICI pneumonitis primarily occurs with combination immunotherapy, so both PDL, PD1 inhibitors and CTLA4 inhibitors. But all of these patients can present from um, being outright um, sick with fevers, um, dyspnea, hypoxia, to having very low-grade 
um, pneumonitis that is only um, apparent on radiographs. Um, clearly, we know the management of these patients is cessation of the drug and initiation of high-dose steroids, with, which comes with problems if you're actively infected. So these are patients that normally, um, if they had pretty significant pneumonitis, I would call Dr. Murgu or, or, or one of my friends in pulmonary and say, um, does this patient need a bronchoscopy? Is there a risk for another infection? And this became very difficult during the height of COVID, certainly, because they were busy manning the, um, you know, taking care of the MICUs. It was difficult to get procedures. And so often we were shooting from the hip. We would do, we would certainly rule out COVID, but treating patients uh, with high-dose steroids without really excluding all possibilities. So it was constant monitoring. So patients would start, there was um, you know, multiple phone calls, are you feeling better, what's happening? And an effort to wean steroids very quickly. Without cessation of drug or initiation of high, steroid, uh, high dose steroids, these toxicities can be severe and can lead to significant mortality rates. In fact, in TKI pneumonitis, that mortality rate's almost 30%, even though quite rare. Next slide. Some of the challenges that we continue to face again six months into, uh, into the pandemic are that there have been substantial changes in our care environment. So we now, when a patient comes to clinic, it tends to be um, you know, one patient and in most of our clinics, we're allowing one uh, accompanying member. But many of our visits continue to be virtual. And when you do that, Either the person on the screen is a family or it's the team, it's not both. So we're not in the same space. It makes it more difficult to establish rapport. And it's honestly very difficult to assess symptoms. You know how um, much you get from when you walk into a clinical, into a clinic room and you see someone try to get up to the examination table. Um, so certainly that piece uh, uh, of seeing a patient um, in person has, has hamstrung some of our just gut feeling about how a patient's doing. A lot of new obstacles. This has increased in equities. Um, we think that there might be potential increases in toxicity risk. Certainly, I think there have been fewer clinical trials at many institutions, um, which have you know, fewer opportunities for our patients to participate in new research. And then as many of us have faced, you know, this is a time of increased stress and certainly isolation. So particularly for our lung cancer patients with um, advanced disease, you know, it, it's tough. You've got limited life expectancy and a loss of freedom. And so it, it's very difficult to manage. Um, many of our patients are taking advantage of um, our palliative care services of psycho-oncology because of the increase in um, anxiety and depression. And then there are the many economic stressors that our patients are facing that is, again, part of the collateral damage. Next slide. Um, one issue that uh, many people have, have talked about and we were trying to get a real handle on because every institution is different is really what's happening with lung cancer clinical trials during COVID. So many institutions, mine, for example, um, treatment trials continued, and we really didn't hold on any um, cancer trials. We were able to continue um, treating these patients. There were a host of other barriers that patients may not be able, want to come in. Um, you know, we changed how, how we did things. The FDA offered great guidance about clinical trials in terms of using um, outside labs, doing telephone 
um, consents. Um, so, so people found their way around it. Um, a lot of industry trials were tough because sponsors had to pivot to virtual SIVs and virtual monitoring, but things, uh, things have evolved nicely. Major findings, we did a test of sort of our, um, of the lung map, and we found that in general, most oncology trials haven't been suspended. So this is 400 sites across the country, and only about half were enrolling at the same rate, but um, that, that people have been um, really agile and sort of pivoting to telemedicine uh, to, to bring trials to patients. So th we're, we'll publish this soon, but this was a, a nice uh, response from the lung map group. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Patel. Thank you for summarizing the available evidence and sharing your experience. There are a few questions from participants and one that just came live. Um, this particular attendee noted two patients with COVID that had worsening in their pneumonitis after GCSF. Did you see an increase in the severity of COVID in patients receiving GCSF or are you aware of that evidence? We did not. In fact, you know, again, Chicago, busy medical center, we had a paucity of patients with lung cancer and COVID. So we ended up with maybe six patients um, that we've reported and none, and those patients all had pretty mild disease. I would say the patients that had GCSF um, with other malignancies actually also fared pretty well. So we didn't see it, but biologically it would make sense that GCSF would increase um, inflammation and pneumonitis. Okay, thank you. Comments or questions from the panelists? I have one before we move on. Um, so I think you mentioned that some oncologists converted their patients to alternative dosing regimes, like you mentioned Pembro from Q3 to Q6 weeks. Is that, um, do you think that impacts outcomes? Can you comment? I mean, should that be the new norm if we're learning that patients are not doing worse with the alternative regime? I think you make a great point. I, I absolutely do think it should be a new, uh, a new standard. Certainly, we have, this is based on PK modeling. Um, I think we will see if it's equivalent as we go down the road a little bit. But I think many of us think that these antibodies stick around for a long time. So it may be that early on we've been, been dosing excessively. Um, when given the opportunity, Dervalimab I do every four, Atezolizumab I do every four, Pembrolizumab I do every six. So, so certainly that's less of a burden um, for patients and the care team. Thank you. I'm realizing time flies when we're learning a lot. So um, uh, thank you so much for again, sharing your expertise. Um, we'll move on to the radiation oncology. Dr. Rimner, what have you learned in New York during the pandemic and how have you adjusted your practice? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's been a tough lesson, but we're in a much better place in New York right now. Um, the 0.5% positivity rate on testing. So we feel much better than we did just a few months ago. Uh, next slide. Uh, these are my disclosures. They're not related to this presentation. Next slide. So I want to start with some practical changes that we've made in our department um, as early as March. And they were, of course, modified as time went on and as we learned things. But pretty quickly, Memorial Sloan Kettering has implemented remote consultation for almost all patients 
um, between March and July. And just recently, have we started to slowly roll out seeing patients in person again. Um, for instance, I see patients once, once a week um, for those who are willing to come in and still do a lot of telehealth visits for all the others. It's led to a significant development of telehealth. Um, we've used a lot of different platforms and um, learned a lot about that too. Um, and patients, of course, have learned how to uh, answer video calls. Um, it's certainly a, a work in progress. Um, it's not finalized yet. Um, there, there are still efforts in trying to settle on one uniform platform and also move clinical research more into the uh, telehealth space. Uh, and that's all ongoing work. On the patient side, within about four weeks from the outbreak in New York, we had an in-house testing and made mandatory COVID-19 uh, swab testing with the RT-PCR assay um, mandatory for anyone who was uh, starting a radiation course. So within 48 hours of the simulation, which is the planning scan prior to initiation of radiation. Um, we very quickly allowed no visitors at all unless the patient could not manage on their own. One visitor was allowed. And patients until now wait in their car for the treatment rather than in waiting rooms, and they get called to, uh, up uh, to the floor when the machine is ready for them. So that avoids crowding um, in our waiting rooms and in our department. We had COVID-19 positive patients, um, and we uh, rescheduled them to treat them at the end of the day and then um, could uh, use the night to deep clean the treatment room um, after them so they were ready for the next day. And on the employee side, um, we have reduced our presence in the department to one resident, one attending to sign all films, uh, missing consents, all paperwork and address emergencies. Um, similarly, um, one nurse, uh, one research assistant um, for, for any things that need to be addressed right there and then. Um, we have had, until now, a daily self-reported health check that we need to submit electronically every day. And we split our teams into, uh, our, our therapists and our physics teams into teams sort of like the bubble in, in, in professional sports, um, into multiple teams with different shifts so that if one team got infected, they wouldn't affect everyone else on, uh, in the department and so that we would maximize our chances of uh, staying fully operational. Um, now, we've had very few therapists who actually um, contracted COVID-19, and so it did not turn out to be a major problem, and the contractions were outside of the hospital, um, but still, it was a potential risk that we had to address. Next uh, slide. So early on, we at Memorial in our thoracic radiation oncology team sat down together and developed some guidelines on how we want to adapt the radiation treatments. And just by way of background, there is evidence base for what we call hypofractionated schedules, which is the treatment with radiation with fewer treatments, so a shorter treatment course, but giving a little bit more radiation in each treatment. And there are physics formulas that can uh, demonstrate whether we are delivering an equivalent dose just over a shorter period of time. That has to be balanced against those shorter courses sometimes being associated with a slightly higher risk of toxicity from the treatment um, because the normal organs react a little bit more uh, with, with a stronger inflammatory response to some higher doses. So it is a careful weighing of the, of the uh, risks and benefits. We published our consensus of just our internal group um, uh, early in, in April. 
Um, essentially, there are established fractionation regimens, for instance, for early stage lung cancer, which is typically treated in somewhere between three and five treatments. Um, there is an established single fraction uh, approach that we would use more liberally in this context. Um, there is a way to treat locally advanced lung cancer, stage three lung cancer in 20 instead of in 30 fractions, which is what we would maybe usually do and, uh, and so forth. And I'll go into some of these in a little more detail on the next slides. Um, now, what does COVID look like? Uh, the RSNA, the Radiology Society has uh, published consensus statements about typical findings of COVID-19. And you can see on the upper right that the, these are rounded ground glass uh, peripheral lesions that are multifocal and they can resemble an organizing pneumonia or influenza A pneumonia. Now, not every COVID-19 case, of course, looks typical. There's a lot of atypical presentations as well, radiographically. And maybe even more complicating is um, reading these scans in patients who have a lung cancer diagnosis, where, of course, many of the of similar uh, radiographic appearances can occur. Now, based on some case reports where COVID-19 infections were picked up on a scan, and then the patient was tested for COVID-19 and found to be positive, um, uh, there, there are several series of that kind, but there's no robust systematic data. We looked in our um, data set because of uh, these case reports and in, in radiation oncology, we frequently obtain imaging during the treatment, but also at the beginning of treatment. These are not diagnostic quality scans, but they're pretty good. And um, we've looked at over 200 patients, but it is very challenging to really identify COVID-19 just purely based on radiographic findings. Um, and, and so when done systematically, it's not really played out. It does not replace RT-PCR tests. Next slide. Now, one of the challenges that uh, Dr. Patel already addressed is the risk of pneumonitis and how to distinguish that from COVID-19. And we had a, a case series um, published early where we had four patients that we thought had radiation pneumonitis, not from drugs, but from, from the radiation. And it was a dilemma to identify which patients had COVID-19 or did they have radiation pneumonitis or both. Um, all patients presented with cough and dyspnea in a time frame of six to 16 weeks after radiation. So certainly in the time frame where radiation pneumonitis could occur, um, the risk is usually on the order of 10 to 15% with radiation alone. Two of these patients have had fevers, which can occur as well with uh, some radiation pneumonitis instances. And the CAT scans showed ground glass opacities. Um, with radiation pneumonitis, we would expect them to be within or near the radiation field. Some of these had, uh, patients had opacities outside the radiation field. And so we came up with an algorithm early on to uh, do COVID-19 testing, of course, um, as soon as someone presents with cough or dyspnea, um, we just repeat the test. And we would avoid empiric corticosteroids if there was a question on whether this was truly radiation pneumonitis or whether this was COVID-19. Of course, these, this consensus was based um, on a, at a was, was done at a time when we did not know the role of steroids in the management of COVID-19 yet. So you can see how quickly these uh, consensus statements or guidelines have to evolve as more information becomes available. And of course, if COVID-19 testing would be negative, then we would treat it uh, as radiation pneumonitis based on clinical presentation. And if it was uh, not uh, available, then we would have to go by the CAT scan and uh, make 
the best clinical judgment call based on that, whether it would be typical for pneumonitis or more typical for COVID-19. Next slide. Uh, I was uh, a participant in the Astro-Astro COVID-19 lung cancer radiotherapy consensus practice recommendations. This included 32 experts that went through a Delphi consensus process of two scenarios. One, an early pandemic scenario, where the goal was really to mitigate the risk and evaluate the risk for patients as well as staff and what we've already talked about, you know, which patients can we delay um, to start treatment in. And then a later pandemic scenario where we postulated if there was a um, lack of resources, whether that was based on radiation therapy staffing or radiation therapy, um, uh, the, the mechanics who you know, maintain our machines and, and have to repair them if necessary. Um, if we had to triage patients or prioritize patients, how would we um, go about that? And so six common lung cancer use cases were used, a stage one, a stage three, uh, definitive uh, patient, post-operative radiation, limited stage small cell lung cancer and palliative radiation therapy for stage four. Next slide. In the early pandemic scenario, the question was, would we be comfortable postponing, uh, delaying, uh, postponing the initiation of radiation treatment by four to six weeks? And the consensus was pretty much no for the more ad locally advanced scenarios, such as stage three lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer or limited stage small cell lung cancer. Um, and a little bit more ambivalent in scenarios like stage one non-small cell lung cancer, and we talked about how there's a difference between ground glass opacities or solid nodules. Um, also, not so much in favor of delaying palliative radiation therapy, of course, assuming that it is needed for palliative reasons um, and the patient is symptomatic. That was the, that was the premise. Factors to consider to really make an, an educated decision um, were also elucidated, and they include tumor growth rate, patient preference, solid versus ground gas opacities, the patient's performance status, T-stage, and where in the pandemic we stood. And I think many of these factors we've already um, mentioned before. So similar thinking in our department uh, in radiation oncology. Next slide. For the fractionation, um, there was a, not a clear consensus on whether we should go with a single treatment as opposed to three or four treatments, mostly because three or four treatments are not that many more than a single treatment. So if a patient is willing to come in for one, they're probably willing to come into, in, in for three treatments. Um, more consensus on shortening a more protracted fractionation course, such as a six-week course over 30 treatments to 20 to 25 treatments. So helping with that is definitely was definitely more of a consensus. Um, for concurrent chemo radiation, there was little uh, enthusiasm for hypofractionating significantly, meaning giving fewer doses just because of the concern of the toxicity that it would just be too tough. Um, in the absence of concurrent chemotherapy, that was a strong consensus that uh, shortening the radiation course would be a very reasonable thing to do. Next slide. And so if a patient was tested positive with COVID-19, what would we do in that scenario? Most uh, experts agreed that it would be reasonable to interrupt a post-operative radiation course, PCI or palliative radiation therapy, um, but few would interrupt a definitive course for stage one or three non-small cell or small cell lung cancer. But of course, one has to consider whether the patient is actually symptomatic or asymptomatic from COVID-19, 
whether they have lung cancer symptoms and also how close they are to the end of their treatment course. Next slide. And so in the late pandemic phase, we were asked to rank how we would prioritize patients for treatment with radiation. And similar to the other um, consensus questions, the definitive stage three cases were ranked highest, followed by stage one. And the ones that, are, that were felt to be uh, possible to be postponed were postoperative radiation or PCI. Next slide. So in conclusion, generally, the experts felt that uh, hypofractionation is a reasonable approach to minimize patient and staff exposure while still maintaining a high level of radiation therapy quality and minimizing toxicity. Definitive radiation courses were the least appropriate for postponing or interrupting. And typical CT findings are known for COVID-19. Finding them in a, a systematic fashion on our imaging during radiation is challenging and it does not replace uh, testing for COVID-19 um, with a swab. And um, the distinction between the infection and pneumonitis from radiation can be difficult, but it has to be, is really important to be kept in mind and be tested for. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Imner. Comments, uh, questions from the panelists? I, as a proceduralist, as a broadcastopist, I do have a, I do have a question. I think in the, in the consensus statement from Astro Astro that you co-authored, there was a very strong consensus, 96% or so, not to delay treatment by four to six weeks uh, for locally advanced 3A with bulky N2 disease. Uh, what about patients with a normal PET CT mediastinum, but at high risk for occult N2 and 3? you know, larger tumor than three centimeters or clinical N1, central tumor, et cetera. Yeah, we did not have a specific case, use case for that scenario, um, but we do encounter those patients, of course. Um, I, I think that that's where the, the responses were a little ambivalent. As you could see for stage one, it was 50-50, would fall into the high risk stage one category, essentially, or stage two category. And um, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a judgment call in those patients. We would not do invasive mediastinal staging necessarily um, if a PET scan was up to date. Um, and we would just treat uh, the, the FTG avid area, um, not elective nodal radiation of the mediastinum in that kind of scenario. Um, uh, but of course, the concern in that scenario has to be that these are usually centrally located tumors that have the risk of, of obstructing the airways, obstruct, uh, causing, becoming symptomatic in the not too distant future. So they would be higher on our list than a peripheral lung lesion, that's for sure. I have a, a quick question um, for you. Um, 30, and 30 and 10, 20 and five, 17 and two. Yes, for palliative radiation. Yeah, you, you know what I'm asking, right? So yeah. Europeans do 17 and two. Some people do 20 and five, and and most in the U.S. do 30 and 10. And I don't yeah. know whether that's reimbursement related. I hate to be a skeptic, but what are you? Tell me, have you moved? I, I was really fascinated by your slide saying, look, we might be able to shorten courses for SBRT instead of doing four or five, do three or even one. Have you actually done? Have you? actually done that. So would you do 17 and two for a single bony met, um, uh, painful bony met? I'm, yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, I think it depends on the clinical scenario. So if there's a big mass right on the esophagus, I think 17 in two fractions might be a little bit tough. Um, 
But what we came to a consensus to, and I think most of us agree, five treatments, five fractions is certainly reasonable in most scenarios, five or less. So um, most people would, in a pandemic scenario, not push for 10 treatments just to minimize visits. Um, and do you go back to that? Or do you, are you saying, hey, you know what? 20 and 5 seems to do the same as 30 and 10. Well, at Memorial, we've already moved in that direction even before the pandemic started. So I, I use 20 and 5 quite often. It also often is easier to integrate with systemic therapy. It does not interrupt the systemic therapy by as much. So um, it has several advantages. Um, it comes down to, again, the biologically equivalent dose um, that we can deliver. But it depends also on what, how extensive the area is that we need to treat. Oh, a, a very large area that's the bilateral mediastinum or so, it's, it's tougher um, to deliver a hypofractionated course. Oh, um, and so fair. 10 fractions might be easier to tolerate in that kind of scenario. Thank you. Yeah. I do realize it's um, 420. Um, I would like to ask the panelists to, for some final comments or thoughts now that you know the fall is coming, the winter is coming, we may see influenza and COVID together. Um, what are your thoughts moving forward? What have we learned in the last six months? If we can articulate that in a few words for the audience. Did you want to ask each of Could you tell us who should go first? Um, whoever, you know, it's, we can volunteer. All right, why don't yeah, we otherwise, go? I will volunteer you, Gerard. Uh, why don't Celeste? we uh, go in the order in which we spoke? Um, I, I think for the audience today, the one thing you heard from all of us is, is a couple of things. Each, I, was, I was fascinated by the fact that each uh, type of specialist um, reached out to their societies, developed a consensus statement in a, in a very quick manner. And by the way, that gives pulmonologists, much of who's on this telephone call today, some cover, right? If you do have to delay and you use guidance, I think you'll be in good shape uh, going out. Um, I think it all comes down to the sort of generally three things that our audience talked about, our speakers talked about, risk to the patient, risk to the providers, um, and uh, the epidemiology, the prevalence of COVID in your, in your uh, area. And so I think as time goes on, we all as clinicians need to be flexible. The one thing I will tell you, uh, which is one of the reasons I asked the, the previous speaker uh, uh, the question around uh, changing their practice a little bit, I'm certain that one thing that's changed in my practice uh, for good, and particularly in our nodule and screening practice, is that we will be doing more telemedicine. You know, my average patient in Charleston, South Carolina, which once you get outside of the city is, is fairly rural, uh, my average patient travels to see me more than 50 miles. Um, and so for, for, for us, I think one uh, upshot, if you will, is that patients um, need to be seen sometimes in person, but can be seen with a televisit, particularly in following a nodule. And so we're, uh, we're moving more to that. And I don't think that's going to change when COVID comes back. So I'll leave it at that. And thank you so much for having me, Dr. Mergu. Thank you, Dr. Silvestri. Dr. Patel? Sure. Thanks so much. This has been terrific. Um, I would very much echo that I think the silver lining of all of this is that medical care has become much more patient-centric. So patients are coming to see us at the point of real contact when there is a need in fusional therapy, getting imaging, that there's something that we're doing. Um, and so it's, again, um, improved significantly because it's based on, on symptoms good communication with our patients. And it's incredible to me because the clinic often seems empty, 
that many of us are at 100 and 105% of our old volume again. It feels different because we're being much more thoughtful in how we deliver care. And so we're sort of laying that groundwork before sort of rolling into clinic that, you know, 40 people in a, a waiting room. That just can't happen. But care is happening. Um, it is going to take some work, again, to convince folks that they can do this safely, patients safely. It's taken a lot of work to convince our clinical staffs. But that other piece of really providing assurance to all of your care team, from the um, MAs to the phlebotomists to the nurses, um, I think has been an important um, part of making this so successful. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Patel. Dr. Donington, final thoughts, reflection on the upcoming season. I know you got disconnected for a second here. Uh, we're commenting on take-home messages and what we've learned from the last six months. And can you reflect on how on your practice moving forward? Uh, I think I'm probably going to repeat what everyone has just said because I'm sorry I missed it. But yeah, I think lung cancer is a very tricky disease during COVID. Our patients... Uh, don't have the ability to wait. And uh, I, I do think care is safe now. I think we are returning to health maintenance. Uh, everything will always be changed a little bit by what we've gone through. But in general, here in the United States, we need to continue to treat our lung cancer patients and we need to convince them uh, that care is safe, care is accessible, and care is important because they just don't have the ability uh, to delay the majority of their treatment. Dr. Rimner, final comment? Yeah, here in New York, we're certainly holding our breath for a second wave of COVID-19 swapping back to us, um, given that numbers outside of New York are um, higher than they are in New York right now. And um, the timing of that might just fall into the you know flu season. So um, we're certainly encouraging all our patients to get their flu shot, which we have done before, but now even more. Um, we will certainly continue to keep our COVID uh, testing up and, um, and you know, as, as rigid and, and, and frequent as we are doing now. Um, the hope is that with people using more PPEs that maybe the flu season will also be a little bit uh, uh, kept at bay. That is some, you know, hope. Um, we will see whether that comes true. Um, other than that, I just wanted to uh, reiterate um, what, what has been said about the socioeconomic impact. I think it's, the telehealth medicine is going to stay as well around, um, especially, you know, the radiation patients are oftentimes the frailest patients that are not fit for surgery, sometimes not even fit for chemotherapy, and they are not great at traveling to and from the hospital as well. So they are certainly very grateful that they don't have to come in each and every time to see us in person. And also the impact on their families. You know, the kids, children don't, don't have to take up, uh, take time off from work to bring them in and wait three hours in the waiting room and things like that. So not to under, be underestimated those impacts um, uh, on, on our patients and their families. Thank you, Dr. Rimner. So we, for the participants, you know, we understand that the published evidence on how COVID impacts our patients suffering from lung cancer remains limited. And the recommendations and the articles reviewed today you know, that, that they may change in the months to come as more studies are being published. Um, if you can move to the next slide, please. Um, I would invite all of you to uh, stay tuned and uh, visit our CHESS COVID-19 um, webpage for updates. We'll continue to have our weekly webinars. We also have a wellness program to support our community. 
and a program of spaced education with quizzes on COVID-related topics, which we think is an engaging and a fast way of learning new things pertinent to this disease. I do want to thank all panelists for taking time of their busy schedules to share their expertise and experience. And I do want to thank all the attendees for, for your engagement in this program. So on behalf of CHESS, please stay safe and uh, be well. Have a good evening.